This is LAPD 1992. This is a throwback to the, the brutal and violent past of the Los Angeles Police Department. On the special report, today I'm joined by Michael Moore. The chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, Moore has come under fire in recent days. His department's behavior during the recent protest has been criticized for being too violent. I'll ask him about that and his controversial comments comparing protesters to the cops that killed George Floyd. I'm Ariva Martin, and this is The Special Report. Thank you so much again for agreeing to sit down with me. This is such a difficult time in our country and definitely in our city of Los Angeles. And I want to ask you first about some of the recent videos that have uh, been played out in the media. Uh, First, it was George Floyd. We watched the officer kneel on his neck for that eight minute and excruciating 46 seconds. And then just over the weekend, we watched in Atlanta a video of Rayshard Brooks, you know, who was shot by a police officer as he was running away from that Wendy's. But today on my show, I'm I'm really focusing on Black women and the number of Black women that experience violence or actually killed by police officers. Women aren't often given the kind of media attention and the kind of public acknowledgement than men, but there is a a large number of African-American women who have experienced of violence by the police. I'm going to be interviewing a 38-year-old mother of four who was brutally beaten by police officers, uh, LAPD officers, when she refused to, I shouldn't even say refused, but when there was some confusion about an order that she was given by the police. You weren't chief uh, at that time. Uh, It was before you actually took this position. But I did want to ask you your thoughts about some of these videos that you've seen played out in the media. How can like a simple encounter, I'll take Richard Brooks, for example, that simple encounter of a police officer trying to determine if he was inebriated or not, how could that encounter go so wrong? Well, that's, that's, uh, that's really our goal each time we uh, approach one of these instances is how to effectively deescalate and, uh, and conduct an investigation as necessary, determine uh, facts or circumstances, whether or not a person should be uh, detained or arrested or, or brought before the criminal justice system. Or, uh, you know, in th- those encounters, we, we have hundreds of thousands of them uh, across American policing every day. And, and the vast majority of them uh, do not turn out to be the, the circumstances that you've referenced here this past Saturday. So the, uh, when they do go wrong, uh, and they go poorly, and we see a loss of a life. So those are those are tragic circumstances, and we have to look at each one as an individual set of of uh, facts and understand where, what were the uh, factors that were involved by the officers, what was the actions by the individual that uh, that, that that the altercation ensued with, uh, what tools, uh, what what uh, training. Uh, what uh, what capabilities that uh, the parties have on all sides of this that end up having such a, a bad outcome? We saw in that case over the weekend that the mayor of Atlanta moved very quickly in uh, calling out the shooting as, as unjustified and actually firing the officer that fired the shots that killed Mr. Uh, Brooks. What, what, what do you take of that? What do you make of, of her quick action in terms of uh, terminating that officer? 
Well, she uh, apparently she has you know, the information she felt was sufficient for her to determine that this officer uh, was no longer suitable uh, for employment. Uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, the, the pr- uh, process works much differently. The, uh, the, the officer's due process rights, uh, an investigation, the, the authority of the mayor or police, board of police commissioners, which is my boss, or even myself, uh, I would not have that ability. I could and, and uh, I could suspend an officer. I could uh, t- uh, relieve them of their peace officer status, but I, I could not terminate them, uh, as you saw that was done there and is done uh, actually up in Minneapolis as well. And we also, because we're focusing on women today on the show, we're going to focus a lot on Breonna Taylor. And I'm sure you've seen that case, Louisville, Kentucky, the no-knock warrant uh, that was served. And, you know, Brianna and her boyfriend asleep in their apartment. We saw after that case, Louisville, Kentucky, council members uh, tr- uh, taking a vote to regulate the use of no-knock warrants. What's your take, again, on a case like Brianna Taylor's where someone is you know, quietly asleep in their apartment, police show up at the door, use a battering ram, enter the apartment, bullets start to fly. And here this 25, 26 year old woman who's working as an emergency uh, technician, a a first responder, uh, you know, her life is taken by the the actions of these police that appear to be uh, completely, you know, against all protocol. So what's your experience with regards to these no-knock warrants? And do you think they should be banned? So I think the uh, no-knock warrants or the concept of of not announcing oneself and demanding entry with a with a uh, court-reviewed and approved search warrant, uh, that the use of those should be uh, very, very sparingly, if at all. The reality of, of uh, that level of shock or that surprise as a means of, uh, of overcoming resistance, I think what we found in L.A. is that uh, quite contrary, that what we generally uh, do is, is a surround, a call out, uh, and attempt for the person to give up and, and surrender. If we have to force entry, which there are instances in which we do have to force entry and, and, and uh, to, uh, to take control and make an arrest of an individual inside, we do so in a manner that's methodical, that's thought out, that, is, uh, that, take, that uses time on our side. So it's an effort to de-escalate and not have the situation spiral out of control. And your department chief has uh, come under fire uh, for the use of force, you talk about, you know, taking time, being methodical in, in the policing work that is done here in Los Angeles. But your department has been under fire for the use of force during recent protests uh, following George Floyd's murder. Uh, some of the protesters have accused the police of using foam bullets uh, and even using batons and, and arresting peaceful protesters. Uh, now, I know you have been in L.A. Uh, at the police department for decades and a lot of work had been done to rebuild the trust in the L.A. Police Department. But those kinds of actions that we saw used uh, against protesters who were peacefully protesting erode that confidence. So, so what do you say to those people, particularly in the black community in L.A., who say, you know, this is, you know, LAPD 1992 all over again? Right. Well, I think that uh, what I would ask is for patience. Uh, there's been uh, uh, snapshots of videos, uh, videos that may or may not uh, depict what the truth facts and circumstances that the officers were faced with. Uh, we have uh, had used, we had to resort to using force 
Uh, I believe it was proportional, but we are going to study each complaint. We have uh, just over 50 uh, individual complaints of individuals who believe that that we resorted to violence or made arrests that were unwarranted. But I will say also, having been on the scenes uh, the, during the first two nights of uh, this civil unrest, that we had uh, a substantial amount of officers that were injured by flying bricks and rocks, uh, uh, metal pipes, glass bottles. We also saw burning uh, looting of, uh, of, of neighborhoods that was occurring. And these were not peaceful protesters uh, that were engaged in those actions. Now, there were protesters that were peaceful or otherwise were in those groups. And then when we had uh, and declared unlawful assemblies that refused to leave. And in those instances, uh, the vast majority of them were arrested without having to resort to force. But there were instances in which officers in defending themselves uh, had to resort to use of force in order to drive people back that were uh, that were bent on, on injuring them, that were bent on harming them. Uh, so we had everything from from blunt force injuries, uh, cuts, uh, a fractured skull. These are these are injuries that were not brought about by peaceful protesters. These were injuries that were as a result of people that were violently attacking officers. So there is a uh, what I would just ask is that this is uh, this is not a matter that is going to be uh, one and done. As I'm not making decisions on any of these uh, on any of these particular aspects just yet, but I do look forward. We've got a team of 40 investigators assigned full time to gather all the video evidence gather all the transcripts and, and accounts, and then to review the facts and circumstances. Uh, because I believe right now that we have snapshots, being some of it being taken out of context, and judgments being passed that I, I don't believe are necessarily fair uh, to, the, uh, to the seriousness of this event. We remain committed to facilitating peaceful marches, uh, uh, whether they're permitted or otherwise, just this past Saturday. We had, uh, oh, I'm sorry, just yesterday, we had an excess of 20,000 people in downtown Hollywood uh, that marched to West Hollywood without a single event of, uh, of an arrest, without any uh, types of violence. And it was a, uh, it was a, great, it was a great day, uh, and it was a celebratory event. And it was one that we saw replicated in the immediate days after the first two to three days of violence. We did see... Uh, the the uh, the protests de-escalate in a sense of resorting to violence, resorting to looting, resorting to burning uh, buildings and cars. And when those when those de-escalations occurred, it allowed us to return back to a facilitating uh, effort rather than having to establish control by uh, by making arrests and taking and taking people into custody. And I don't want to minimize, obviously, Chief, the uh, violence that may have occurred against officers. And if officers are, are injured. Uh, no one wants to, to marginalize, you know, the, the, you know, the fact that officers' uh, lives are important, too, and, and we don't want to see officers' lives uh, lost. Uh, but it's hard for the public who's watching this, and, and particularly those of us that remember uh, 2007, the MacArthur Park protests, where over 250 protesters uh, ended up filing complaints and over $30 million was paid out in settlements uh, against the uh, actions of the LAPD. And some of us are, are wondering... You know, why isn't the police better prepared? Why aren't they anticipating better what likely is going to happen after, uh, you know, a case like George Floyd uh, gets such national uh, attention? And it's hard to watch when you see batons and when you see police pushing back on protesters 
So the optics don't look good for the police. So what would you say to those of us who don't have all the inside information that you may have about the injuries to the police officers? And all we see is, is overly charged, aggressive policing while protesters are, you know, are, are speaking up against violence by the police. Right. So I think what what I would ask is for is to, uh, some patience as we gather all the information and put it and put it in the proper context, not as a matter to sell. Uh, if we've made mistakes, if, if we've had failings on, on an individual officer standpoint, uh, there'll be accountability for that. But I also want to I'm also here to defend the actions of the rank and file that were there to facilitate lawful, peaceful protests and saw those protests spiral out of control. And where buildings were buildings were damaged, uh, cars were set on fire, bu- uh, businesses were looted, and officers were attacked. And we saw, and we actually saw violence within the crowds themselves, where there were pro- protests that were injured by other protesters. So the the matter of that being something that we can control. Uh, there is a limit to how much we can control. It wasn't It wasn't just unique here to Los Angeles, but we saw policing across the country that struggled with dealing with, with moving from a facilitative role to then having to exact control through crowd control ma- measures that invo- involved force. And many times it involved force in direct proportion to force that was being used against officers. We would want organizers, we would look for uh, those that are part of these demonstrations to step into that void and and take control and not allow uh, violence to take over uh, such an important issue. And we saw that in the days after uh, after the first two to three days, we saw organizers and we saw members within crowds that started policing themselves. In fact, I saw that even on a, on Saturday, the day that we're in the Fairfax district, I saw people working the line and trying to uh, minimize and, and de-escalate those that were within the crowd that were agitators, that were looking to, to have a fight, if you will. And so that type of police uh, self-management, self-policing within demonstrations is what we most enjoy. We have a have worked uh, alongside the National Lawyers Guild for decades and in and improving their ability to to marshal the crowd's temperament and to shape it in a peaceful way of expression. They can be loud, they can be boisterous, uh, but they don't have to be violent. And and when they are violent, it does limit all of our capabilities to peacefully resolve those matters. And, you know, Chief, there's a lot of, you know, disagreement about what protests should look like and who's in charge of, of kind of determining what protesters do. So I'll, I'll give you your position that, you know, police have a job to do, but protesters also, you know, have a broad latitude under the First Amendment to protest in a way that they feel, absolutely. you know, but let's be clear. The first, but let me just let me just address that one point. The First Amendment, we absolutely want to see the the rights of expression to be guaranteed that is a founding principle of our democracy and a and protest frankly is a is an attribute a great attribute of our democracy is one's the one's airs one's grievance to air one's concerns and protests against government yet there is a limit to when you start setting fires you start injuring officers with with bricks and, and rocks and pipes and we saw those conduct and we saw that conduct occur over some of these pro, some of these uh, demonstrations and there is that line that has to be drawn so let me ask you this chief and you seem to get passionate as as 
you know, any supervisor would when you're talking about your employees, your members being injured. But but the public is asking, where is that passion from police when we witness what we witnessed with George Floyd or we witnessed what we saw with Breonna Taylor or now Rashard Brooks? What makes you emotional? I mean, have you had a tearful moment? Have you had a moment where you've watched one of those videos and you've said as a man stepping out of your role as police, but just as a human being, as a a good citizen, which I, I believe you are, uh, that this is just too much. That that you know really got to you emotionally. Have you had that well, moment? Oh, of course. And and as every American, uh, you know, you look at times in our history, instances, and you just it 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 can shake you. I mean, it can it startles you, and it can be disappointing, it can be frustrating, it can be angry. Now, I looked at that video uh, in the days immediate days after of uh, George Floyd and when he was murdered by those, by that officer uh, for eight minutes and 46 seconds on his neck. And I was disgusted. I was frustrated. And I, and I publicly came out and, and spoke about that in a very public way, uh, not just in person, but on, on social media and other, other platforms to, to, to absolutely, it was disgusting. It tarnished the badge and it brought dark, it brought a darkness uh, out uh, that, that, I'm I'm praying and hopeful that we can, as a country, uh, move through to, to to put on place reforms that uh, change the this uh, use this as an opportunity for change, for lasting change. And so you see these episodes uh, of, of violence. You see these episodes of someone being wronged and being wronged by by law enforcement, uh, and those are they they hurt. And they hurt you because I, I know the sacrifice of so many men and women in this profession. And in fact, in the days after uh, George Floyd's death, and we saw protests and demonstrations around the city, I was with a number of officers that, that were on, on the line and they were, they were crying. They're upset because they're emotionally just torn because they see what they're trying to get accomplished and they hear uh, people casting uh, broad brushes of of of, uh, of indictment against the entire profession, and so there is a there is that passion. The passion exists in support of everyone uh, in our society that we should have an open society that's fair, that's that that's not with that does not have racism and and bias that goes out and gives everyone an equal opportunity to to really live the American dream. And those aren't just candy coated words; those are true uh, true matters of 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 belief and, and, and passion that we have in this profession of service. So there is the passion, the, the passion to defend our officers uh, from, from attack, to defend their, their dignity and their valor that they engage in. But we also know that we have a dark history and that we represent, this badge represents 150 years in law enforcement. And while we have been some of the most, we've been trailblazers in, in a sense of 21st century policing, we've also had dark moments in times where officers within our own agency uh, has brought, has brought discredit to us. And so that's the balance. No. And I appreciate you for sharing that, that officers have, uh, you know, had emotions and that they've been moved by at least the, the, what they witnessed with George Floyd. But, but you do understand that it's so difficult for communities, particularly communities of color to see these as, as dark moments rather than a systemic, a culture that exists uh, in policing that has existed for decades, not new to you, not uh, new to the LAPD, but but date back, you know, literally decades as it relates to the police's relationship with the African-American community. And then you see what happened with Jay Farrell. I'm sure you saw 
uh, what happened with him. He came forward recently and told about an incident that happened to him in February. Uh, this is a, a, a famous actor, comedian who said he was pulled over by LAPD, that he uh, you know, was thrown to the ground and that he had an experience where uh, it was very similar to what happened to George Floyd, where a police officer literally was kneeling on his neck. So when you hear that from Jay Farrell, and I've had African-American men on my show from athletes to entertainers to high profile individuals to say, we're no different than what people may think only happens to people in poor neighborhoods or in you know gang neighborhoods. So how do we believe you when you say that, that the police care about these issues when we keep seeing incidents like the one happening to Jay? Well, one one bad example or one example that uh, it has a lasting searing impression on the mind. And I recognize the start, the, the starkness of that imagery. Um, but I also see the imagery uh, every day of our men and women who go out and work in uh, our communities of color that dedicating themselves to form lasting engagements, lasting and building of trust. We have uh, uh, programs with, such as a community safety partnership where some of the most uh, previously violent prone areas in which officers are assigned in those areas for as long as five years to learn, to get to know the the people that live in those neighborhoods, to partner with them in building not just trust, but in building safety and resilience of that community to to overcome the challenges that have many times plagued those communities for decades. So those, those engagements, and sometimes it's a cop and a kid, and other times it's a family member or maybe it's a, 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 an adult or an elderly person that we're going out to do uh, to find uh, groceries for, to help them with their prescriptions, to find to cover uh, a problem or a challenge that they have in their neighborhood. That's not a policing matter. That's a human matter. It's a matter of us demonstrating that our commitment is to see everyone uh, and live in a community that's safe, uh, that's 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 uh, comfortable, that allows them uh, to enjoy the, the city of angels. So those engagements occur every day, uh, and they occur countless times. And of course, they don't sell papers, and they don't oftentimes lead the news, or, or people find that that uh, that that type of conduct is something they're drawn to watching. Uh, we do. Uh, we as a society. Uh, you know, have major uh, continued challenges with with racial equality, with finding uh, opportunities for everyone to thrive. And today, in today's time, with COVID nineteen, this pandemic, uh, the economic depression that we're that we're just coming into the into the midst of, those challenges are going to continue. What I know as a police professional is that we have a role, a role of that can build us through this together, that we can work together and we remain. This morning, the sun came up. The sun, the sun came up this morning for an opportunity for us to take a step forward in a productive way that builds relationships, that builds trust in communities. And to the public that has um, you know, a cynical eye or, or looks at us and with, uh, with jaundice being, believing that, that we can't do those, that, that type of hard work and that type of engagement, uh, I would just ask, give us a chance. Uh, extend a hand. Uh, we're going. To, we're extending ours, and we need to work together for the safety of our city and for the wellness of the of generations to come. Well, you know, and I'm glad you you talked about giving you a chance because you know, recently, Chief Moore, you came under fire uh, for comments that you made uh, at a podium at City Hall before reporters. You, you made a comment 
that some interpreted that you were comparing looters. Uh, you said looters were as responsible for George Floyd's death as were the Minneapolis police officers who kneeled on his neck. Uh, and following that comment, I know you did walk it back, but it, that kind of comment led to hundreds of people, not, if not thousands in LA, calling for your resignation. Do, do you think that was fair, that, that it was fair for people to, to take that comment and say, this is Daryl Gates, this is LAPD 1992, this is a throwback to the, the brutal and violent past of the Los Angeles Police Department? Do I, I think it was fair. The reality of my apology immediately after uh, I misspoke and I did at that same podium uh, minutes later come and, and address it and, and, and clarify and just correct myself and apologize for, the, uh, for making, that mis- that making that mistake, that error. And I said later that evening that I recognized that but my apologies, that there'd be those that wouldn't accept it. And, and I recognize today that there still may be those that, that wish uh, for, for my retirement or for my resignation or for, them, for, me, to, for me to be removed uh, from my office. Uh, that, those are, you know, people may have those, uh, those beliefs or those assertions, and I respect them. And I would just ask that uh, as we move forward, that uh, I, uh, we, I be recognized for my book of work, what I, what I do each day, what I've done throughout nearly four decades of, of service to the city, uh, and that I make mistakes. I'm, I'm a human like everyone else, and, and I would hope that my, uh, that my, uh, my life's uh, definition would not be uh, in the utterance of one sentence uh, in, in a time that, was, uh, that, that it was a mistake. But having said that, uh, I'm also, we're moving forward. We're moving forward with a workforce that has worked, strived to be, uh, to see that Los Angeles be a, the safest big city in America. And we're in a period now where our, our credibility, our standing, our, our partnership, our genuineness of us wanting to be a partner in Los Angeles is under a great deal of question and scrutiny. And with that, I will, will not suddenly be dismissive or, or just uh, ignore those challenges. I think we're going to, we're leaning into it to understand it and ask to be understood. And, and whether it be our actions on a protest line or our actions uh, in an arrest of, an, of a single individual, uh, I think that what we're at, what I know we're doing is is asking for us to have a conversation to understand what the consequences could be uh, as far as what our challenges have been and what our efforts have been to address these these injustices, these these injustices that have existed. For instance, when we look at uh, the criminalization of of communities of color and young men or who who find their ways, they find their way in in a pair of handcuffs based on a crime that they committed or uh, uh, some type of assault or or, uh, victimizing someone within their own community. I think you see an LAPD today that is saying, how can we get this young man back on the right path? But I do want to stay focused on the issue of, you know, what's happening with the police department. And you said you're moving forward and you're right. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. And I agree that, that your entire career, what you've been, do, what you have done and what you plan to do shouldn't be judged on that one statement that you made. Uh, uh, obviously, you know that that was, you know, very insensitive and it felt very hurtful and harmful to people who have been out uh, peacefully protesting and those who are really just sick and tired of of the police brutality against African-American people, men and women. But I want to talk 
we're running out of time, so I want to make sure we get to this whole concept of what moving forward looks like. There's the right. Big New York Times article out over the weekend that says the work that police departments have done from body cameras to implicit bias training uh, to de-escalation training hasn't moved the needle one bit on the number of people that are killed by police every year. That number has stayed stubbornly at about a 1,000 people a year. So when we talk about moving forward, to me, we can't keep doing the same things and expecting a different result. We've tried. And I I don't think and I don't think in L.A., excuse me, but in L.A., it has the needle has moved. Uh, Last year, we had the lowest number of Austrian involved shootings uh, in our recorded history, more than 30 years. We had 26. That's a 37 percent reduction from five years ago. Uh, you see uh, efforts of of de-escalation, of tighter uh, tighter accountability with uh, our use of force policy, with tools and training of our people that has improved, with implicit bias uh, training and development of our of our uh, of our workforce. That 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 procedural justice and fair and impartial policing are cornerstone values, preservation of well, life. These are not just if, if you if you say these things are, are true, why are hundreds of thousands of people taking to the street, not just protesting against the Minneapolis Police Department, but one calling for your resignation and, and two calling for the disbanding, dismantling of the entire uh, Los Angeles Police Department, even to the point where the mayor agreed that $150 million of the police's budget should be reallocated to community efforts. So I hear you when you say there's improvement, but clearly the community doesn't feel like this is a police department that has responded to the needs of this community. I, I believe progress has been made. It is, is it enough? No, we'll, we'll continue to need progress. I believe this is a, mo- a movement that we're in the midst of, that we can improve on accountability, that we can give chiefs of police more power, for instance, here in Los Angeles, to be able to remove problematic officers. I believe that this is a time for us to ensure that we are doing community engagements and building trust and activities. It is also an opportunity for America to look at policing and ask itself, do we have police involved in too many too many activities? Dealing with people with mental illness, for instance, the mental health system in America is in is in shambles. It's a it's a it is one in my view one of the, the ugliest um, aspects of our of our democracy is that mental health professionals at night is either police or firefighter. And, and that should not be the case. We should have outreach and engagement by mental health professionals that can deal with many of the challenges that now result in a 911 call. And we see, we see snapshots of that in policing in various parts of the country. I'm proud here in Los Angeles where we have had clinicians working alongside officers in our, uh, our what we call smart teams to go out and, and have uh, and work effectively with persons experiencing mental illness in order to find alternatives uh, than, than just the use of law enforcement. So there's progress that has been made. What we talked just a moment ago was that seemingly we're stuck. We're just stuck on stupid. We're not actually moving. And, I, and, and that issue in American policing, about 1,000 people dying each year as a result of, of police uh, use of force, deadly force. And in Los Angeles, those numbers are not the same. Our, we have seen uh, declining numbers of, of having to resort to deadly force. And I believe it is an attribute of seeing the policies that, we're, that we've been adopting. We're, 
We but were. You, you do understand, Chief. And again, I, was, I, I have to just interject here. You do understand that as you talk about the numbers increasing, and you have every right to point to those numbers. But we continue to see these cases, like a homeless man who was beaten, uh, you know, by police, caught on videotape. I just, you know, gave you the example of. Uh, Jay Farrell, who was accosted by police. So when we continue to see those incidents, I, I don't think we can just say they're, they're one bad apple or it's just one bad police. They, they, they point to some structural issues, the way that police, including Los Angeles police, not just police in other parts of the country, treat African-American men and women. And when they come into contact with these men and women, we have to acknowledge these structural issues, these, these cultural issues. And, and I guess I should just ask you, do you think racism, you know, is embedded in, in the way policing happens in the Los Angeles Police Department? I think racism, there's aspects of racism in all of our society, uh, including policing. We, we hire uh, from the same communities in which we, we police. And so the idea that we're immune from having uh, people with prejudice or bias uh, we, we, we select carefully. We study hard the character and the, and the values of individuals that we hire. And then we work hard to, to keep those employees well and to keep them emotionally uh, healthy. And yet we also have instances in which, uh, in which bias and, and, and prejudices, I believe, do set in. And our key is to, is to not, is not to harbor it, uh, is not to allow it to flourish or exist. Uh, and so the, the reality is that racism is in, is in all institutions of America, uh, including law enforcement. And my key as, as my commitment as a chief and as a law enforcement professional is to is to bring it to when, when it's found is to hold it accountable and cast it away. But chief, should you be doing more than what you say when you find it? I, I think what the protesters who say defund and disband the police are saying is that enough is not being done to ensure that that kind of structural racism that has permeated police departments is rooted out once and for all, not one cop at a time. And I think there's frustration because you see one cop fired, but then, uh, you know, then you, you see other incidents happening and it says we can't change this problem firing one cop at a time. So I, I guess I'm well, going to end by asking you, what's the biggest, boldest idea that you have that will address the, stru- address the structural issues in policing? You guys get $1.8 billion. You get a lot of money. And LAPD is not even the largest police department in the country. Chicago's bigger. New York is bigger. But you have this, and, and their budgets are smaller than yours. You have almost 10,000 police officers. So it's not 20,000. It's not 50,000 people that you're managing. What are you doing with that $1.8 billion? And, and, and tell us, what, what's the biggest, yeah. boldest idea you have that once and for all end this conversation about brutality wow. against black and brown people? So this this idea, this the concept of policing in Los Angeles is how do we build trust? How do we build uh, confidence and ensuring that law enforcement does not arrest its way out of everything? That that law enforcement has a shared responsibility for public safety. Law enforcement does not does not define the the health or welfare of a community. It's part of a of a combined system with our health professionals, our education system. How do we ensure housing? How do we ensure jobs? How do we ensure 
that this is a society where people have uh, uh, have equality and a running chance of this of this American dream. And for law enforcement, that means that every problem is not at our doorstep, that we are, we are not the solution. And I think the boldest idea that I'm asking for is for America to invest in all of its systems that cause these inequalities and that the more than 700,000 men and women that work in law enforcement across America, that we have our bad apples just as we have bad apples who are journalists, who are doctors, who are clergy. And that's not to excuse them. Because we, we, need to, we need to have zero tolerance for that type of bigotry or racism. But as those failures occur, uh, we do need to look at our systems that may uh, harbor or somehow invite or give people an impression that that type of conduct is allowed. Uh, but I believe that we're better today and holding ourselves accountable than we have been in generations past. But we still have more work to do in front of us. And can I just ask you, Chief, to consider that when you reduce the problem to bad apples, you are marginalizing and minimizing the systemic issues. And that's where I think we get stuck in this conversation, that uncomfortable conversation about race that has to happen. And every time we say this is a one employee problem, we are minimizing and and dismissing the larger issue of the way black and brown people are seen by police officers. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these statistics that say, you know, African-American men 2.5 times more likely to die from an encounter with police. Black young men, you know, six leading cause of death of black men is death by police. So we can't dismiss this as a one bad apple problem. And when we do, we are losing sight of the bigger issue here and we'll never fix this problem. I just want to end. I want to give you another opportunity to, I want to talk to you about your humanity. So that video of your officers in your department beating that homeless man, what emotions did that, you know, invoke for you when you, when you saw that video? I'm sorry, which video are you referring to? There's a a viral video of a homeless man that's being beaten by LAPD. You didn't see that video? I'm, 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 (laughs) there is a, there's an individual who we believe was homeless that was in a wheelchair that has, uh, that had an injury above his eye. But I'm asking uh, about the, the, but that's not that case. That that case, uh, we actually believe uh, that individual was injured by, by, uh, by a protester. So I'm not, I don't know which. No, no, there's an actual video of police officers beating a homeless man, and I'll make sure you see it because okay. you should see it. Uh, he's actually standing up. He's a black man. He's standing up. He's not in a wheelchair, uh, and he's being beaten up by police officers. So, so just imagine. You oh, haven't. I'm seen sorry. It. I'm sorry. This is the uh, the arrest of uh, the individual where the officer was just recently arrested. Yes. yes. I believe okay. well, I believe he was arrested, but he was beating yes. up a homeless man. Yes. And so and that that video, when I was brought that occurred on a Monday and that night I, I just want to I ask you your emotions. I, I I don't want to talk about the procedures of it, what happened, the no, arrest. No, no, no. I, I just want I was, to know human as a human, when you sure. see people that you supervise engage in that kind of conduct, does it make your blood boil the way it makes our blood boil, those of us who are citizens? It was frustrating. It made me angry angry and upset. And it was, uh, and as uh, that case was immediately brought before the district attorney's office to allow them to, in, to what they did, file felony charges against that officer for his uh, excessive use of force, unwarranted. Uh, so, the, that investigation 
uh, will be. I, I just uh, want to I want to frame your word and you keep using the word frustrated. So you felt frustration watching your officer. Yes. Beat that homeless man. Yes, it was unnecessary. I, I, I lacked trying to understand why that why his reaction was that was uh, bewilderment and just frustration and angry because that's not the core values of this organization and it's not what his sworn duty uh, to do uh, to his what his sworn duty uh, requires of him and so and it sets us back it, it sets us back because it it it, it does paint the entire organization with that type of, of abuse and, and misuse of authority. Well, we're going to leave it there, Chief. Thank you so much for sitting down. Uh, tough, 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 tough. I can't even say the word enough times to emphasize how difficult these issues are, but they have solutions. I think that's the positive point I, I want to end on. There are solutions to these problems. We can uh, humanize uh, the experiences that African-Americans, uh, men and women have with police officers. Uh, I don't know if we're there yet, but I- I'm hopeful and optimistic that we will get there. And again, thank you for sitting down with me. Uh, and uh, you have a great day. And I'm sure we'll be continuing this conversation uh, as these issues continue uh, to be talked about and discussed. Uh, and hopefully, like I said, we'll, we'll get to a place where policing is, is Policemen, I'd love to see police revered in the same way that firemen. You know, we love our firemen in this country. Uh, and maybe we'll get to that point in this in this city, our state, and our nation where police officers are given the same uh, level of respect because of the actions uh, that they've taken uh, and the trust that they've built in communities. So again, thank you, Chief Moore. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Special Report. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following at Ariva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.